Hello and welcome back to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. As always, I am Tim Horgan, the executive director and host of this series. We hope during these times of social distancing that you are staying healthy, both mentally and physically. We also hope that you have been engaging with the other World Affairs Council of New Hampshire online programming, Wackenage Live. On today's episode, we take the time to speak with Sawar Kashmiri and Dr. Bruce Elmsley about the coronavirus, its impacts on the global economy, as well as U.S.-China relations. We also dive into discussions about the Belt and Road Initiative and how China is using that to their advantage. We're excited to have you and hope you enjoy today's interviews. That is Dr. Bruce Elmsley, Chair of the Economic Department at the University of New Hampshire's Peter T. Paul College of Business and Economics. I invited Dr. Elmsley to chat with me about the current state of the global economy and what the COVID-19 crisis means around the world and here in New Hampshire. We started our conversation focusing on the current state of the economy here and around the globe. The unemployment numbers for the United States came into this with an unemployment rate of about 3.5%, fairly decent growth, fairly strong trade figures, and the economy was reasonably solid. And so right now, the U.S. economy is actually pretty much a freefall. Record unemployment claims in the past few weeks were the 22 million claims, which outstrips anything we've essentially ever seen before. And so the downfall has been dramatic. The downfall of international trade has been fairly dramatic as well. Depends on what you're talking about. But the economic situation is just is in dire straits. Well, we all know that the social distancing measures that have been enacted around the world have undoubtedly hurt the global economy. What about all the warning bells that had been ringing back in August of 2019? For a little while, the Treasury yield curve was inverse, a usual sign of economic downturn. And many top financial institutions were warning of a rising risk of recession. While this crisis ensured the old saying that economies never die of old age continues to be true, was this downturn still inevitable? Well, there obviously there would have been a downturn, and that downturn had been expected for a while now. But everyone has been very surprised that U.S. economy has been able to grow essentially without a downturn for over 10 years. And so the downturn is expected. The question is, how large would it be? And expectations were that we're going to be in a, essentially a zero growth situation as an economy this year and probably hit a minor recession, but there's no expectation of any kind of great, large recession in the offering. The Fed wasn't complying that. Most financial markets didn't seem to be looking that way. And so this is definitely a unexpected event. It was triggered, obviously, by COVID, 
but the government has never come along before and said, what we're going to do is we're going to shut down the economy. We've never experienced a situation like that before. Since we are in such unprecedented economic times, can we even make predictions about what the economy will look like when social distancing measures are relaxed? That's another issue, trying to forecast how it is we're going to come out of this, and that we basically have no history as to how do you get out of something that the government itself created. You know, one rosy scenario is that, well, as soon as the government opens up, there's going to be this pent-up demand, and people are going to want to get out, people are going to do this and that and the other thing. And that's probably not realistic. It's going to take a long while for the economy to actually recover, more in terms of employment numbers than in GDP numbers. Speaking of employment, it would seem that companies who have automated a majority of their workforce are the ones who will survive this current crisis the best, as machines are not required to distance themselves, at least with this type of virus. So, one will think that more and more businesses will look to technology to insulate themselves from future pandemics of this nature by continuing to automate as many tasks as possible. That's one of the things I was mentioning was that typically what happens is an economy in terms of GDP really reacts much more quickly than employment numbers. And so one of the things you'll see is that as we move out of the recession, the businesses will retool. And when they retool, they'll retool with more or less the latest equipment that's available to them. And essentially, technological change has been sort of labor-saving, and it continues to be with automation, AI, that sort of thing. And so there's going to be an acceleration of that. So that's why I say that employment numbers are most likely going to lag in the GDP numbers, is because it'll take us getting back to higher levels of GDP than we had last year in order for the employment numbers to get back to where they were last year. On the other end of the employment ladder that will potentially drag down the economy further, small businesses had employed about half of all Americans. While the federal government has tried to pump vast amounts of relief funds to these businesses, inevitably many will fail. Without these companies driving economic growth, and with so many consumers out of work, it will be difficult for Main Street to recover. This leaves the door open for large corporations who have the resources to weather this storm to come in and fill the void. More than likely, that's going to be the case, is larger businesses, almost definitionally, have more capital available to them. And typically, they play on a much larger profit margin than small businesses do. And so when a downturn comes, they have definitely much more of a cushion. I think smaller businesses are already uh, going out of business. There's no doubt about that. Does this portend the end of small businesses and the rise of corporations, or will we see small businesses revive and come back? The economy has its own natural ebb and flow, and the trend has been towards higher concentration in the U.S. economy over fairly long, protected period of time. It's been less than it has been in European countries, but there has been a movement in that direction. But that concentration will eventually turn around and move back towards more smaller businesses. But when that will be is essentially anybody's guess. All I can tell you is that there is a 
historic ebb and flow in the concentration of economic activity. Unless it goes too far one way, then it will start rebounding the other way. As we continue to look at the U.S. economic recovery, you cannot forget the impact that international trade has on the consumer economy here in the U.S., as well as on the export economy. According to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 39 million American jobs depend on foreign trade, with nearly 98% of all exporters being small and medium-sized businesses. Also, the U.S. ran a cumulative trade surplus from 2009 to 2018 with countries we have free trade agreements with. So, with trade being such an important driver of economic growth, will companies start to prioritize more local supply chains or stop trading altogether? That's actually part of a fairly long discussion and trend that businesses have been having, largely as a result of the Trump tariffs, and that they've been forced to be a little bit more agile and think more broadly about their suppliers, especially geographically. And as that has happened, there's been more of a discussion amongst business leaders as to you know, how do you maximize profits long run with respect to supply chains. And there's obvious reasons why you'd want to go with a single supplier in terms of efficiency, cost advantages, and things like that. You're able to, to maintain your quality control much more easily. But the danger of that is that as any kind of economic downturn whether it's political, for example, from tariffs, whether it's related to floods or earthquakes, or hurricanes, or things like that, or whether it's a result of a pandemic. It becomes more expensive, long run, to rely on single suppliers, especially geographically. And so what I expect to see is I expect to see an acceleration in that move towards being more diverse in terms of your supply chain but also probably a move towards somewhat closer suppliers. And also, to go along with that, there will probably be a movement kind of away from more just-in-time production. And you'll probably see companies wanting to hold higher levels of inventories for these types of things. So long run, I think the supply chains are going to shrink a bit in terms of geography. But we can't do that, you're going to see an expansion Of course, no discussion about the coronavirus pandemic is complete without a discussion on China. As one of the top global suppliers of many goods, how will this change in global supply chains impact their economic relations with the rest of the world? How about with the U.S., based on their most recent trade dispute and stage one agreement? I'm somewhat of a China critic, I guess you would say. And... I really think that overall, China had just about maxed out in terms of its global influence. You know, there had been a movement essentially before this away from China as single suppliers. And one real issue that I have with the whole downturn is that maybe it is that people will start to take a more Trumpian view of trade, and that is that we don't want to be relying on international supply chains. We want to have protection and more goods produced at home. You can actually see why in this pandemic. But that comes with a huge economic cost. With respect to China in general, I suspect that the United States is going to be moving away from China more and more. And 
other countries are going to do the same thing. Stick with their cause, it's going to be increasingly costly for them to do business in China as China, I think, is going to be, and I see signs that they're, that they're closing up, that they're putting more restrictions on private property rights and those types of things. They're trying to become more centralized, reestablish state-owned enterprises and that sort of thing. And I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult to do business. And I think we've, we already saw that trend before COVID and it'll probably just continue. It has to do with trade agreements specifically is that I think that it'll be more difficult to maintain those relationships. And as long as if, if China is expected to purchase quite a bit more, in especially in agricultural products and those sorts of things, they may well do that. But I don't see it as a stepping stone to much greater economic integration. As we look around the world, countries are all impacted in different ways by the crisis. Some countries have already begun to open their economies back up, while others are still trying to flatten the curve. With the staggering impacts and continued presence of the virus, how will the world come out of this pandemic? I like to think about it more in terms of sort of country by country, in the sense of it's not going to affect every country similarly. The Economist magazine just came out with a prediction of the 33 top countries in the world and what the negative impacts on those economies are going to be. And number one is Greece for somewhat obvious reasons going back to the Great Recession. And number 33 was the United States. And a lot of that happens to do with the agility of the U.S. economy. And so as long as we can, as a country, really support private property rights and not having government imposing too many new restrictions on economic activity, long term, the United States is going to be fine. Other countries, as they become more restrictive, then they're going to take a lot longer. And as always, any kind of downturn, pandemic, whatever you want to say, it's going to hit developing countries harder than developed countries. It's always the case, and it'll probably be the case this time as well. As of May 1st, we in New Hampshire are starting the second full month of the stay-at-home order. Recently, small protests have been popping up around the state, demanding that the government open the state back up. Leaving aside the public health aspect of the order, and simply looking at the economic impacts, many people are wondering how long can this go on. As the shutdown continues, is irreparable harm being done to our economy? People are really getting antsy, and they're, getting, they're wanting to get back to work. And if you hear officials saying, we're not even thinking about opening until July or some such thing like that. It's, it, it really is a, it's difficult to believe that you'd be able to hold people down for that long. The checks in the mail, the unemployment benefits, and that sort of thing are going to definitely help. But people have a need to work. People have a need to interact with others. As this isolation continues, you're going to see the cost of this isolation grow in terms of other types of negative health effects, negative effects on marriage, really negative effects. And it will be more difficult the longer it lasts. I think that Trump has been 
doing a decent job of telling people that you know, essentially there are costs on both sides. If we open up too early, then there's definitely going to be death from corona. If we stay closed longer, there are a lot of other negative effects. Negative effects on suicide, on other types of diseases that are associated with you know, obesity and not being active and depression, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, all these types of things. These are things that are, are increasing right now. And, you know, you can't make public policy without having costs on both sides. And I think he's done a decent job of informing the American people about that. Despite all of the negative news about coronavirus and its negative impact on the world, is there anything to be hopeful for? particularly here in New Hampshire. The state last year increased exports by 10% over 2018. And if you look at our top export markets, Germany, Canada, Ireland, and these economies are expected to do relatively well. And so there might be less disruption for New Hampshire, especially in terms of exports, imports, and things like that, than a lot of other countries. In terms of our exports, the sort of top export is aircraft parts, civilian aircraft parts. And our second export is more generally medical equipment. If you add up all the categories, medical equipment would be number one. And so airplane parts, aircraft parts, and things like that, it's going to be really devastated over the next years, I would suspect. But medical parts and medical equipment are going to be growing. That's why I talked about the agility being important. Is the economy able to maneuver and move as the trade winds flow one way or the other? And an economy like the United States and an economy like New Hampshire, I think is reasonably agile, certainly by international standards. And so in that sense, I think we're going to do I want to thank Dr. Elmsley for taking the time to speak with me about the economy in these challenging times. While we know that it is difficult for everyone to adjust to this new normal, we hope you are able to maintain both your mental, physical, and economic health. It is important to come together as a community during these times, and just know that our global community is here. That is about as much as many people know about the massive infrastructure plan that China has been implementing over the past several years. However, as Darwar Kashmiri continues, It will result, in my opinion, in China becoming the most influential country in the world, uh, with more alliances by far than any other country. I took some time to chat with Sawar, a fellow at the Foreign Policy Association and adjunct professor at Norwich University about China and their global ambitions. Many of you may remember Mr. Kashmiri speaking to the council back in November of last year, and we are excited to bring him back to our programs. With the Belt and Road Initiative, Xi Jinping is looking to cement his legacy in a number of ways. In fact, he's made sure that it's now embedded in the China constitution. And 
In summary, what the Belt and Road Initiative is, is the largest infrastructure project in recorded history. China intends to spend it, has budgeted it for a trillion dollars. Uh, to build the infrastructure of over 120 countries uh, in Central Asia, in Europe, in Africa, and in South America, mainly focused on uh, Central Asia, Europe, and Africa, to build ports, roads, tunnels, bridges, airports, land ports, fiber optic lines, to connect these countries to one another and put China in the middle of their connection. And the idea behind it is that trade and business is what raises living standards, as China has seen happen to it over the last two generations. These countries want to do the same, as use China funding, technology, to develop all this infrastructure so that they can then take advantage of the multiplier effect of infrastructure to trade. And finally, this is the third leg of China's grand strategy, which consists of gaining biotechnology. First of all, in China, uh, deciding a number of years ago it wanted to become the richest country in the world, which it has become. Secondly, to make its coastline inviolable, especially to American power projection, which it has achieved. And the Belt and Road Initiative is the third part of it, to lock all these countries into a win-win situation, as Mr. Xi Jinping explains, with China. Many people look at the massive amounts of money that China is spending on these infrastructure programs and wonder, what is in it for them? Are they looking to take over vital trade routes? Do they want to wield power over these countries by sinking them deeper into debt? Is it purely out of the goodness of their leadership, which most people would say is not concerned with human rights? It may be actually a number of things. So China's getting a number of things out of it. China, as you know, has developed into a major world power second largest world power at this point, and it has done this by investing a lot of money into its own infrastructure. Today, for example, China has 25,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. This is the investment that they've made in trains that high-speed rail is defined as trains that run at 250 kilometers or greater speed. So China has 25,000 kilometers of that, and as you know, Europe has some, the, the U.S. has none. They've built new highways, they've built ports, they've built container ships, they've developed the technology to handle large container ships. Some of your listeners may know that state-of-the-art today is container ships that have 20,000 containers, right? So they've developed all this technology and expertise, they've spent all this money. Now, they are trying to figure out, or they want to figure out, how to use all this surplus, having built all this infrastructure. So one thing the Belt and Road Initiative does is transfer their technology and their experts to other countries, rather than laying them off. So that's one. Two, China's growth rate will require a lot of natural resources, which these countries have. And so China locks in a supply of natural resources for many, many years. Thirdly, as these countries become middle-class consumers, they will look to China 
uh, to a maintain their infrastructure and to buy the produce that China's making. And fourthly, there's an enormous amount of goodwill that could result from this. And I point out in my book that people are going to start wondering whether democracy is really the be-all and end-all of governance. China can, with its system of government, become the richest country in the world in 30 years. You know, most governments want to get their people to become rich. Most countries want to see their people become rich. This does seem to be a great way for smaller countries to do this. Although, you must be careful of deals that seem too good to be true. Therefore, it is important to understand how these projects are structured and what dangers may lay in wait. There are some projects that are truly funded by China, so that's one that most are not. Most are funded by China and then involve private corporations in China. Uh, private corporations in China, as you know, allow people to own companies, start companies, run very large companies, become billionaires. But by and large, they have to keep in mind what the government dictates are, even though they're given a lot of flexibility in running their businesses. So there are these private companies and state-owned companies that invest together with, uh, with the funding for the Belt and Road Initiative. So it's a mixture of how it works. Because of the success of BRI, now Western institutions are starting to get in on the act. But today, uh, there isn't a single large multinational bank in the West that is not involved in some kind of funding for the Belt and Road Initiative project. Now, let me hasten to add that where you and I speaking just a month and a half ago, the coronavirus issue would not have arisen. But now that's changing things. But my answer to you would remain the same, which is the funding is a mixture of the government of China, private companies in China, and also in the last, especially in the last year, private Western financial institutions and companies. As Sarwar had mentioned, things have changed for the prospects of the Belt and Road Initiative and China in general over the past several months. Will the coronavirus pandemic, which has affected almost every country in the world, put downward pressure on these projects? What will it all mean in the end? In the description that I gave your listeners of the Belt and Road Initiative, right, I said that uh, these are projects funded by China, and they involve China's experts going out, working with the local folks and getting these projects up and running. So if you just think about that for a while and how the world has changed in the last month and a half, first of all, China's economy has contracted substantially. Fully half of the small and medium-sized businesses in China have shut down. They are the backbone of the Chinese economy. So although we don't have any numbers on the Belt and Road Initiatives, it doesn't take a lot to figure out that things ain't going to be the same, right? There just won't be enough money in the Chinese economy to be able to run these projects at the speed that they were running two months ago. So that's one piece. The second part of it is that all the distancing rules that the world is following, especially China, Wuhan and other, even though they're starting to relax them a bit, the idea that Chinese experts will travel in large numbers to other countries, and sometimes they travel in the hundreds 
they have built through the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as through the provision of emergency medical equipment, what challenges might that present to the U.S.-led international order? That's one of the collateral effects that I think should get more publicity than it has, is that China's Belt and Road Initiative may wind up dethroning the idea that democracy is the be-all and all of government. With so many people pointing to the lack of transparency and truthfulness of the Chinese government at the start of this crisis, as well as it being the initial source of the virus, how are they the ones looking most likely to benefit from this all? You know, China, I must confess to no brilliance of their own, finds themselves in a really, really advantageous position today. Largely because the Western world, by and large, subcontracting the manufacture of these now so important uh, items to China. So China makes most of the ventilators, most of the masks, most of the coveralls. I mean, in New Hampshire, right, what did last week that the governor was able to enroll the inventor, the Cayman who has contact in China and also uh, he personally knows the CEO. So he arranged through his contact to have $2 million worth of medical assistance equipment purchased in China and FedEx through it to New Hampshire, uh, and it is already being distributed by the National Guard. Right? So this is the kind of goodwill advantage that China now has in its pocket as the rest of the world is searching for these items. So that's an example of the expertise that China now has with all this equipment. I think the United States, as well as Europe, is taking it on the chin of it. Because uh, we don't have all this stuff. We've got to get it from China. And China can put a stop to it if they want to, as, by the way, they've now done a fair amount as of this week. They've set up new export rules, new clearance rules, and a lot of this medical equipment is now sitting. It was bound for America, but it's sitting in Chinese warehouses. So those are some of the tough situations that you're going to have to deal with in the United States. With China benefiting from this in terms of global leadership, does this mean the era of U.S. leadership is over? Should we just pull back from the world and leave it to the mantle of leadership for China to take over? In my opinion, the coronavirus has led to an opportunity for the United States to show its leadership once again. And that is by working closely with China, forming a leadership partnership, if you will, to lead the world out of its economic travail. I believe that China and America were to get together, they could short-circuit economic recovery of the world. Uh, and let me give you 
be one exam. That's the BRI. So the BRI runs through 120 countries, more than half the world. What better way to spread wealth, kickstart economies, restart businesses, than for China and America to, in partnership, work with BRI? I mean, China is feeling the pinch, as I said earlier. Economy is getting shattered. People can't travel. What, as America's been trying to find, by the way, a countervailing force to the BRI and has come up with something called the Blue Dot Network, which isn't working at all. It isn't funded. That's really not a very clever idea. So if there's a way for China and America to get together, so that we could get uh, Wall Street involved in BRI projects, then we could make BRI act as a conveyor belt as well to 120 countries, more than half the world. And this is an opportunity that I'm starting to speak about that I believe could work. So that can I uh, give you some part of the good and bad sides of the upcoming influence on uh, U.S.-China relations. As the Chinese have it, the word for crises in China has two characters. One spells danger, and the other spells an identity. And I think we ought to think about that phrase and show some leadership in shaking hands with the Chinese and doing what needs to be done for the world. Otherwise, every country will suffer, even the United States and China. It is all well and good that this could be the best way forward. However... The U.S.-China relations have not been overly positive in the past couple of years. A rather destructive trade war, a demand by some that China be held accountable for the pandemic, as well as conflicting forms of government have pushed these countries further apart, not closer. What is the likelihood that any of this type of cooperation is possible? Well, you know, I was born and I remain optimistic. I have a feeling that as this calamity and I'm not using that word lightly, as the calamity we're in clarifies into realism. It will focus the minds of Chinese and Americans in a different way than it has before. I mean, it's one thing to be standing at a cliff looking into the abyss, and it's another thing for the leaders in China and America to say, all right, we jump together and die together. So I remain optimistic that as this calamity worsens, as the unemployment worsens, as small businesses shut down, right? I mean, we have today 22 million unemployed Americans. Huge, huge number. Thousands and thousands of small businesses are going to get wiped out. As all of this happens, I believe that minds will get focused. The lobby that is trying for revenge on China and wants to continue to be an enemy of China and the Chinese lobby of the same kind, I think there might be a sound as shrill as it is now. I think people are going to be thinking differently. You and I are thinking differently. Every business in America is thinking differently. So I remain optimistic that something like this, in some form or another, might be the light of day. And I just want to continue speaking about it as a form of business because I just think that would be great. I mean, look at what these to be images. You feel the need in New Hampshire for ventilators, masks, protective garments that nobody has been able to fill. New Hampshire couldn't get this from anywhere, but the governor and Mr. Dean came in and within three weeks it was done. When speaking with an optimist, it is important these days 
to bring out the positive view that they have on the world and where we are headed. Sawar goes on to share this. Well, let me give you one thought that is driven by reality in the United States. Unlike other countries that rely on export to run their economy, the United States is a consumer-driven economy. Roughly 17 to 75% of America's economy is driven by the Wall Street journals three or four years ago editorialized that China, through its manufacturing ability, has done more to keep inflation under control than the central bank of the United States. How are we going to make sure that consumers continue to spend money if we don't have goods that are affordable? And the only way to get affordable goods is to source them from countries and getting consumers to buy them. What would be the result or the advantage of disconnecting with the world and selling Christmas trees that are available in Walmart and other places for, you know, 10 or 12 bucks for 52 bucks? Is that really going to help the economy? I don't believe so. I think after the initial wave of let's cut everything off and let's bring it all back into America again, I think as people see it backfiring and interviewee has such nice things to say about your council, you leave them with the last word. Well, you have one of the more active World Affairs Councils, and, you know, I believe the World Affairs Council do so much for America. Uh, so I wish you continued success, and any time you'd like me to help in any small way, I'm more than happy to Thank you so much for listening in. If you would like to know more about Sawar's thoughts on the opportunities that coronavirus provides, please check out his recent op-ed for the Foreign Policy Association entitled, The Deadly Coronavirus is Also an Opportunity. This has been a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. (music) 